0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. Find out more at RaiseYourHandTexas.org. And ten million dollar opportunity to meet unprecedented challenges facing Texans. sponsored by Lydia Hill Philanthropies. Lone Star Prize seeks solutions in the area of health, workforce, and the environment. More at LoneStarPrize.org. Do I have to talk you a lyric?
1: Well, such a long time. Hello, and welcome to the April 22nd edition of the Texas Tribune Tripcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by justice and politics reporter Emma Plato. Hi there. Managing editor Matthew Watkins, who you can't see, but whose children have once again locked him in his bedroom closet. Hello. <laughs> and CEO Evan Smith.
2: Hi, I like being last.
1: <laughs> I know. It's, I like to switch it up every once in a while. Don't go out of order, whatever order, quote unquote, that is.
2: There's kind of a Ricky Bobby vibe here if you're not last, you're first or something. So anyway, whatever you want to put me in this is great.
1: I don't actually know who Ricky Bobby is. Um, but maybe we'll, we, we should.
2: We'll, we'll, we'll move on. Mo- That's move it. on. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> okay. So we now know the set of individuals who will be advising Governor Greg Abbott on reopening the economy. It's this group of 41 members, including some of the most prominent and politically powerful business execs in the state. Not included in this group are mayors or county judges. So let's start there. What do we make of the task force that we uh, now know is advising the governor
3: on this? So this will be the group that um, is kind of working with Abbott, uh, giving advice on policies to kind of reopen the Texas economy. Um, you know, this is a, a plan that Abbott has kind of started to roll out. We saw um, state parks open uh, on Monday. There, there will be elective surgeries and um, retail stores available to open for um, curbside type pickup things this week. And then more announcements come next week. And this group of about 40 or so kind of business leaders um, will be advising him on these policies, uh, you know, it's, we'll, we'll see what it takes. I mean, obviously, Abbott is really thinking about, you know, uh, economic issues. And these are some big names, big minds, you know, you've got Michael Dell, Kendra Scott, uh, you know, uh, Ross Perot Jr., uh, a lot of people that are, you know, some of the wealthiest, most well-known kind of people in business in, the, in, the, in Texas. Um, but you know, what does that say about where Abbott's priorities are? You know, I think some Democrats, some folks have argued that it's a little bit discouraging, um, you know, to not see any, any local officials on there who are obviously worried about kind of health issues. Um, there's been some, uh, some complaints that it's, uh, not the most diverse list in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, it's definitely kind of opened Abbott to open up to a little bit of criticism. Let, let, let me uh, uh, add to the list of, of, of things that are going to reopen, apparently, according to
2: the governor's interview with Chad Hasty this morning. Hair salons apparently going to open. Watkins, you look like you could use a hair salon. You look yes. like a member of the Doobie Brothers, actually, right now. Um, I, this is, by the way, the longest my hair has been in, in, uh, in, in, in many months. Um, and I, I need a damn haircut. Um, uh, so I actually just interviewed. Can you not see it? It's really kind of long on the back. Uh, um, I just, I, I. I just interviewed a member of the task force of the strike force, Kirk Watson, Um, and we talked about this very subject that Matthew raised, the decision to to put together a strike force with these people and not those people on it. And so, yes, you've both called out the fact that there are no local elected officials on it when it's going to fall to mayors and county commissioners in communities all over the state of Texas to actually reopen the state. There are no local officials on this committee. There are also no legislators on this committee. Kirk Watson is gonna be gone in a hot minute, right? Dennis Bonin, the outgoing Speaker of the House, is only an advisory member to the strike force. Where are the legislators? And also, where are the Democrats, right? Where are the Democrats? I mean, hell, even Lupe Valdez got 40% of the vote last time. I mean, there are Democrats in the state. Why are there not Democrats on this? This is not a time for politics. The people who have complained or at least reported, and we're among them, that it's a bunch of political donors who are on this color me shocked, right? It's the other stuff that I'm candidly more curious about.
1: Yeah, I mean, so our colleague Cassie Pollock in her story this week on taking a closer look at the task force came up with the number where, you know, of the 41 task force members, including James Huffman and Mike Toomey, who were kind of the leaders of it, 27 have donated to Abbott's campaign since January 2015. So, I mean, at this point, do we just think of that as business as usual in the state? Abbott was asked about this
4: yesterday at a press conference. I think he, uh, you know, to me, all of the criticisms we've laid out that have come from from Democrats and some local elected officials about the makeup of the strike force were pretty predictable, right? Things that he probably could have imagined people would be curious about and asking about. Um, I, I believe his line yesterday was, you know, he's taking his guidance from doctors, not donors. Uh, of course, he is getting a lot of guidance from doctors. Um, John Hellerstedt, leader of the state agency among them, but he's also clearly getting some guidance from donors. And um, I, I think a few of us noticed his answer. He, he was asked about the diversity of the task force. Uh, as we know so far, even just from preliminary data, the impact of the coronavirus has been particularly harsh on uh, communities of color and low-income communities. And the task force is largely white. And I believe his answer was, um, "He." I don't know that he quite addressed the question. He did point out that his chief of staff uh, signs is Hispanic. So it, it, it was kind of interesting for me to see way that was phrased and Hispanic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely some, I guess some pushback on the makeup of the group so far.
2: I mean, I think, you know, the fact is Alexa, president Obama appointed a whole bunch of donors to be ambassadors. I mean, the fact is in politics, I'm afraid to say, I'm sorry to say this is the way the game is played until there's a reset of that. I'm not entirely surprised to see donors get appointed to things right? I mean, I I don't know what to say about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I do think to to Emma's point, you know, when we do think about the people who have already shown to be disproportionately affected by this, and when you think about, you know, the reality is that the people who would be most at risk, separate from the elderly or the immunocompromised, but the Texans, often people of color, working low-paying jobs, that require them to interact with a lot of people, right? You're thinking about jobs where there's sort of this like high exposure to the public. And so when you you look at this group and the advice that they're supposed to provide, I mean, this group may employ a lot of these folks, but can they represent them as you consider how to reopen the economy safely?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure Michael Dell has a lot of perspective right now on what it's like to be like a waiter who lost his job and is, is struggling paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I think that is a valid criticism that you need kind of that voice by people who, you know, uh, understand that, that, you know, situation Situation. that those folks are in right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's also the extent to which there are no local leaders who, you know, some could argue are maybe more in tune with some of those needs just because they are on the ground. In reality, like he did have and Fifty-four choices of someone he could have picked, including. Right. And
2: so don't yeah don't don't put Steve Adler on there. We know you don't like Steve Adler. Guess what? That's not exactly a spoiler. But how about D. Margot? How about Betsy Price? Those are two big city mayors who are out right. Sure.
1: So I mean, the the other part that I wanted to get to is, you know, last week we talked about the sort of organized push from the right that the governor was facing uh, on the shutdown of the economy. The you know, that really hasn't slowed down since then. But these sort of developments or, or, or announcements have felt a little incremental, right? Like there was notice that we'd get more about the reopening of the economy. Then we got the actual names of the task force last Friday. The recommendations aren't coming out until next week, I think. Is there is there a sort Monday. of- slow, or Monday. Is there a sort of slow rolling to this? Like does does putting these names out there and forming this task force kind of- serve to appease the right while kind of buying some time for the shutdown to keep working on the medical front of this?
3: I think that there's a little bit of that. I mean, I think um, there, you know, and you you see this in kind of what Democrats are saying. A, A lot of Democrats right now are really trying to portray Abbott as kind of being reckless and irresponsible and getting out ahead of what, you know, a lot of the experts are saying on this. And honestly, so far, the you know, economic reopening have has been pretty meh, you know, it's been pretty minor. I mean, opening state parks, like people can walk around outside, like that's not really changing that much. The um, I think most people saw the kind of retail to go situation, and we're not particularly alarmed by that. Um, the elective surgeries thing. I mean, uh, Emma, you had a story uh, last week about how hospitals are worried financially, and also that they're not their beds are not getting filled up right now. So I mean, so far, what he's rolled out, has, has not been some kind of like dramatic swinging open the doors. Let's put these folks, you know, let's, you know, we're going to unbend the curve, or, you know, I guess, unflatten the curve and and, and go crazy here. I mean, you know, he, he may not have the same level of kind of like forceful declarations that you see from, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo or um, other folks. But in terms of like his actual actions, he's not really taking a step out there. He's not doing the things that folks like Dan Patrick or, you know, Matt Rinaldi or various other people seem to be asking for these days.
4: And even if you compare him with other, you know, prominent big red state Southern governors, I think the best example maybe is Brian Kemp in Georgia, who has, uh, to a certain extent, you know, following certain protocols, bars, restaurants, maybe not bars, but definitely restaurants, theaters, bowling alleys is on the list are we able able to massage parlors, uh, something I'm sure we've all been missing over the last month or so. Um, we, we do see people who are going a lot further than Abbott. And I think that is notable when you think about Texas as like the quintessential open for business state, he is being sort of more measured in his approach than, than some of his uh, colleagues.
2: I I have to say, Alexa, I, I take some, a uh, pleasure in looking at the tweets from the People's Republic of Connie Burton, uh, and also um, and, and, and also and also from the likes of, of Matt Rinaldi and um, the Empower Texans folks who have been just absolutely up the governor's ass about this. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the governor Abbott is no one's idea of a liberal. Let us stipulate that, and um, and the idea that somehow the governor has not been an advocate for ninety nine point nine percent of the agenda of people who put liberty ahead of all other values and virtues is kind of nutty. Um, I understand that people think that they wanna have the freedom to make these decisions, but there are larger issues at work here, the governor would argue, from a public health standpoint, and the governor doesn't wanna be, as as Emma has correctly called out, he doesn't wanna go full camp on the state of Texas because the consequences could be enormous. I continue to be amazed. I mean, we can argue about are we testing enough and that we're down near the bottom or maybe at the bottom of all states. We still only have barely more than 500 deaths after months of this. We have so many fewer deaths than states with much smaller populations. Um, you know, the shelter in place stuff, you could quarrel with the decision to do X or do Y, but we're, we're staying whole as a state. And I'm really, I'm personally really interested to see what the reaction of some of these same people will be if we end up in a situation like we did 100 years ago where the second wave of the disease is worse than the first. Mm. That's the thing we're trying to avoid now. Um, and also, what are those folks gonna do when it comes time to vote for Republicans on the ballot who supported the stay at home order? What are they gonna do? They're gonna vote for the same people they're complaining about. And they're not gonna force his hand. He looks moderate and reasonable compared to some other people as Emma's making the point. So.
1: Well, we It's kind are, of
2: fun to have that, that Twitter feed, though. So I'll tell you what.
1: <laughs> we are going to talk about voting a little bit later. Of course we are. But before that, um, I do want to talk about testing a little bit more. Emma, you wrote this week about Donley County up in the panhandle, which appears to be but may not actually be the sickest county in Texas. Tell us about Donley County and, and why you wrote in on it and what's going on there.
4: Yeah, so we noticed Donnelly County because on a map of Texas, if you track the cases by population, so if you look at cases per 1,000 people, it looked for a long time, and I think today finally lost the top spot, but it looked like the sickest county in Texas. It, had, um, it still has about seven cases per 1,000 people. It's a small county, 3,400 population, uh, give or take, and that's about 10 times the infection rate we were seeing in places like Dallas, Houston. Um, so of course we wondered why. And it turns out to be that there's sort of a more complicated answer. It's not just that, um, as some of the local officials there believe, there may have been some spread of the virus due to U.S. uh, Route 287, which kind of goes right through town. And as Matthew Watkins can attest, has some really great rest stops if you're ever on your way to Palo Duro Canyon with your family. Um, Yeah, I I figured out after I
3: saw the picture on the story (laughs) that I had actually been one of those people going up to Colorado, uh, (laughs) driving through.
4: Not, not at the implicated time, fortunately, no, but um, <laughs> definitely fans of of the Clarendon rest stops. But uh, what we what we learned, and what I think is actually turning out to be the best explanation for why Donley County looks so much sicker than much of the state, is that the only doctor in the county is a guy named John Howard, and he also happens to be the county judge. And he figured out really early on you know, this is an elderly community. This is a poor community. This is a small and rural community. And he knew that a lot of his neighbors, his constituents, his friends could have really bad outcomes if they did get sick with this. They are 60 miles in either direction from the nearest hospital and he's the the only MD in town. So he has been testing um, at a rate, I think at least four times at the moment what Texas is testing. And it's compared to his surrounding counties in the Panhandle, it's just astronomically higher. And so his theory is basically that if you test more people, you get more positives. Um, and, and that's kind of the explanation we're seeing as to why the rate is so high up there, which, which I think, you know, in the way you started us off was saying, what does this tell us about t- testing in Texas? I think it tells us that um, there would be a lot more information that would probably look bad if there was more information at all. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, the- yeah, don't you
2: think, Emma,
1: that go ahead, Evan?
2: I was just going to ask Emma, does it have to do with the willingness to test or does it have to do in some cases with access to the supplies to test? It's easy to do more tests per 100,000 or per thousand in a county where you don't have that many in raw numbers, right? If you run into a situation where you're in a big county, you might want to test, you might be willing to test, but aren't the supplies also an issue?
4: Supplies are an issue for everyone, but I actually think that supplies, based on what we're seeing so far, are a bigger issue for these rural counties. And it's kind of the same problem Texas has had compared with other states, which is that when your rates look lower, you seem like a less important place to send the tests and the other resources. And then you have fewer tests, and then you have fewer cases, and then you get fewer tests, and then it looks like you have fewer cases. So it's kind of this catch-22 and I think the, the way you escape that, or in the case of the County, the way they escape that is you have a local official who's also a medical provider who uh, works really hard. You know, he had to switch labs. The one he was using was only able to give him five testing kits and he felt like he wasn't getting results back fast enough. So um, that kind of very local level advocacy is I think we're seeing a way to solve that problem. But of course, a lot of these counties don't have any, any doctors or any medical providers at all, let alone one who's the chief of county government.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what is so interesting about this is that at this point, Donnelly County has so much more information about its residents and the state of this outbreak that, and to guide some of its decision making than the state does. I mean, it, obviously you get to a 2% of Donnelly County residents who have been tested much quicker if your denominator is a lot smaller. But if you're thinking about what decisions to make locally, that county judge is going to have a lot more information than the state does at this point.
4: And, and that, I to me, that was one of the most interesting takeaways from the story. I spoke to a, a few of the county judges in the surrounding areas, and many of them don't have any cases at all. And one of them in Hall County told me, I bet we do have cases running around out there, but I'm, I've been hesitant to issue a stay at home order, you know, either that would extend the time for the governors or that would be stricter in some ways because with no confirmed cases in the county, I don't think anyone would follow it, even though he himself suspects that there are cases. So, so it's really important both for decision making and like for public
1: compliance. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, before we get to our last topic, we've got two more sponsors we've got to go to.
0: TeachersCan.org. Those who can adapt to a new way of working overnight, teach. Thank you, teachers. Visit TeachersCan.org to learn more. Hashtag TeachersCan. Hashtag Thank a Teacher. And the Texas Bankers Association represents 500 banks across Texas. Learn why Texas banks are the heart of the community at TexasBankers.com.
1: Okay, so last week I made us talk about redistricting. This week I'm making us talk about (laughs) elections. I have all the power and I'm using it. Um, We are barreling toward the July 14th primary runoff elections. You know, obviously a fairly small turnout election, but one that could, you know, come with some big consequences in terms of how we run elections in a pandemic. Uh, I talked to a lot of election administrators across the state, and they're all kind of trying to figure out you know, how the heck do you safely host in-person voting with enough poll workers and social distancing at the same time that the state is fighting, you know, any expansion of voting by mail during the pandemic? Obviously, we don't know where we're going to be in July. But I mean, is the state going to regret holding out on a resolution before the runoffs? What do we think?
3: We're all waiting for you to answer your question. (laughs)
1: question.
2: (laughs) Why don't you ask somebody who actually knows something, which is to say you. Um,
1: (laughs) I want to know what your
2: reaction is. I I think the state's going to do everything it possibly can to avoid allowing expanded uh, vote by mail, because the consequences of that would be um, a political earthquake, I suspect.
3: Yeah, Um, they don't want to set a precedent, right? They don't want to set a precedent where we did it this time in this emergency situation and it turned out okay, you know, so now we can keep doing it. Uh, you know, the, obviously it won't affect kind of the partisan outcome because it's primaries. You've got a Republican primary and democratic primary, but, um, if there's this, you know, they would say there's a concern about widespread fraud. I think there's a lot of debate over whether that is actually true, but if you have this election and you don't have the widespread fraud, then the question becomes, why can't we just do this every time?
2: Always, and Texas has always resisted every means that other states have passed to motivate more people to vote, whether it's motor voter, same-day registration, uh, online registration. I mean, Alexa, you know this better than anybody. We do not live into what we say, which is that we want more people to participate than do now. There are a lot of things we could be doing. And obviously, vote by mail is one of them. Look, what happened in Wisconsin is a classic be careful what you wish moment for people who resist this. The folks in Wisconsin who resisted vote by mail, aided and abetted by the Supreme Court, thought that was going to affect the outcome of the election in their direction, and it turns out voters were willing to crawl over glass to vote in person. If you made them choose between democracy and death, they said democracy, right? They they, they were not gonna be, be kept from voting, and the outcome of that election was not the way that people expected. So it could be a damned if you do, damned if you don't thing.
4: And in the meantime, and uh, uh, telling Alexa once again something she knows better than anyone, the burden is on these local election officials who have to figure out with all of this uncertainty, you right. know, one level of uncertainty, what, what stage will this virus be at oh, in July? Okay. Another level, where will this court case be at in July? You know, will the state have changed its position? And they're doing things like asking, you know, can we have a drive-through? Do we need to buy thousands of pencils and allow people to vote on screens using the erasers, like these elaborate schemes that they may or may not use, all because we can't seem to come to a resolution statewide about what, what should happen?
1: Yeah, I mean I think something that was interesting when I was talking to a local election administrators is that there's not like a general consensus on expanding voting by mail or even like going to an all mail election like obviously someone running elections in Bear County where they can run a pretty massive mail in program in-house versus someone running tiny Aransas County where the staff of two people, you know, they're starting from very different places in terms of being able to turn this around. But I think that the lack of clarity going into this is what's really kind of hampering any of this planning and could, I mean, there could be some real fallout both in July and November, like something that came up quite a bit when I was talking to these election administrators was how much this felt like the voter ID fight, when you had all of this back and forth in the courts, while administrators were trying to keep up and train their poll workers. And in the end, you know, you had people getting different guidance on election day. And, you know, obviously, we saw the insanity in Wisconsin that ultimately did actually disenfranchise voters. And I, I mean, that, that that's sort of the risk, even if it is like a you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, on the administration side, without a doubt, if we are not careful about this, we will have even more disenfranchised voters come election time. Um,
3: and- I just think about how Texas is not that great at running elections in normal times. Like, how in the world right. are they going to do right. this? And like, I mean, you know, we saw this in the, uh, the, pri- the March primary, where there were people, you know, lines around the block and, and people waiting till 1 a.m. in the morning later than that to vote. You know, how long is that line going to be when everyone has to stand six feet apart from each other? It's going to be, you know, you're the one line is going to start at one voting center and go to the next one. It's going to be crazy. Right. We're,
2: we're going to be tweeting Fire Stand Standard at like seven in the morning, Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, I mean, and the, the other thing that, that I wanted to get to is kind of the, you know, we don't know where we're going to be in July. We absolutely don't know where we're going to be in November, but. From all we've heard from public experts is the possibility of a resurgence of this virus in the fall, no matter how this sort of goes in the summer. When we think about November, I just like I break out in hives even just thinking about this and all the things that could go wrong. But like we are going into an election where a lot of voters are going to be using new machines that they've never used before. We no longer have straight ticket voting. So we don't know how long it's going to take people to get to the ballot get through the ballot. And now the ballot is getting even longer because all of the municipal elections from May that were postponed are now being added on to the bottom of that. And so there's like no way to know how long people will take, no way to know how long the lines will get. If you have six people standing six feet apart, what if it rains on election day? What if there's hail on election day and you've got people like going through parks and parking lots and all of this? I mean, I think when, when we think about what does this mean for November? I'm curious what y'all see the risks, both at, from like an election administration standpoint, but also in who are the voters that are affected by this and what does that mean politically for the outcome of those elections?
3: I think it's impossible to know, but I think kind of the one thing that Evan said, you know, bears uh, repeating, which is that people will go to great lengths to vote. I mean, we we saw people staying up at Texas Southern until, what was it? like? three four in the morning we saw people in the middle of like at what at so far has been the peak of the COVID 19 crisis going out to vote in in wisconsin so um i mean it might be a mess i don't i don't think anyone can predict how it'll affect elections you know whether it will drive certain things certain segments of society i mean there's obviously the um the vulnerable um populations that um you worry about it driving turnout too but then there's also the um traditionally Republican populations of older folks who might be hesitant to go out there and vote too. So, um, there's, there's just, you know, it's, it's my favorite thing to say on the trip cast that just nobody knows anything right now, but it's, it's true again.
1: It really is becoming your calling card. It's getting a little (laughs) flurry.
2: It it ought to be a drinking game. Every time the beard says nobody knows anything, you chug, right? That's it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, but I think there are like real questions about, you know, you often hear this more in political terms, like who does more mail voting help, quote unquote, and which is obviously kind of a problematic way to think about it when you're, when you're weighing politics against voting rights and access. Uh, But I think there, there is so little that we know about voting behavior, even in normal times, even more so in a pandemic, when you have all of this uncertainty, it just, it seems impossible to even set ourselves up for what was supposed to be, you know, a historically high turnout election in November and in the middle of all this. Oh, Breaking out in hives. Um, all right, well, uh, we are just about out of time as always. Thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to Raise Your Hand Texas Lone Star Prize hashtag teachers can and the texas bankers association are sponsors this week on behalf of emma matthew and evan and our producer jacob this is alexa thanks for listening